right, if you will, tonight, please take your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13 is where we will be tonight. I don't believe it will be very long tonight, so maybe we can get home. Amen. Backslider. Uh, Maybe we'll get home before the weather gets here. And even if we don't, I can't think of any place I'd feel more safe than in the house of God. The only problem is we just have to vacuum this front hallway because it has a tendency to flood. 1 Samuel chapter 13 tonight. I want to speak to you out of verses 16 through the conclusion of the chapter. If you want to know kind of what's going on right now in Israel, basically... They have just one year ago had Saul be anointed king of Israel. They were begging for a king, and they were essentially saying, we want to be like every other nation. We want to look like like the Philistines, and we want to look like everybody else around us. They have a king. They have someone to look to, to answer to. And see, that was never God's plan for Israel. He wanted them to be, he wanted to be their only king. But because Israel continued to beg God and they would continue to backslide against God, so God gave them what they wanted. And so that's basically where we are. Verse 16 now is directly after Saul's biggest mistake as a ruler up until this point, where he decided to take the sacrifice into his own hands and did not wait on Samuel to arrive on the scene. He felt pressured. As often, that's when we do take things into our own hands, is it not? We feel the pressures of And the Bible says, if you want to do your own study on it, the people were apart, departing from Saul. In other words, they weren't so invested in the king that, that they had just asked for uh, just a year or two before. And so they were begging for a king, and now Saul fills them emotionally and in actuality departing from him. And so he's looking around, seeing the nation of Israel divide and kind of follow their own plans, and he's their king, supposed to be the one with all the answers, and, uh, and then he sees the Philistines moving in on him, and, and he's really confused about what to do, and he feels all the outward pressure, and instead of obeying God's word and obeying God's command, he took matters into his own hands, and he sacrificed, and God did not want him to sacrifice, but that was reserved for Samuel to do. Now in verse 16, I want to speak to you on what I would consider an obscure passage of Scripture. And when I read it, it just stuck out to me. And I hope that maybe the Lord will use it in your life as He did mine. Verse number 16 of 1 Samuel chapter 13, the Bible says, And Saul and Jonathan his son, and the people that were present with them, abode in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned into the way that leadeth to Ophrah. That's not Oprah, that's Ophrah. Unto the land of Shual. And another company turned the, the way to Beth-Haran. And another company turned to the way of the border that looketh to the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now, and I want you to really focus in here. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, 
lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan, his son, was there found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we ask tonight that while we briefly meet together, you would speak to hearts. I pray that you would use me as I've already asked. Father, I pray that the word of God would uh, be very clearly taught and then as a result be very clearly understood. Lord, I pray that people would not tune out to worries of uh, outside this building, like what's the weather going to do, what's going to, what are we going to eat tonight, what are we going to uh, do at work tomorrow. But Lord, I pray that they'd be very focused in on what the Word of God has for them tonight. I pray that everybody in this room would be praying now as I am praying, Lord, speak to my heart. Use the Holy Spirit of God to speak to me, and Lord, move me to a point in my life where I can draw closer to you. Lord, I pray that that would be the heart of every person in this room tonight, and I pray that that would be my heart to just selflessly deliver the word of God, not for show, not as a performance, but Lord, that I would uplift the cross and I would uplift the word of God tonight. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. The word of God is absolute truth. There is no flaw in it. Now there's lies in the Bible, but they're recorded accurately. You understand Ananias lied But the Bible records that lie accurately. The Bible tells no falsities. It tells no uh, uh, fallacies. The Bible is absolute truth. When I picture Noah there riding on that boat and those waves tossing him to and fro and those animals sitting there, probably the buffaloes and and the cockroaches were getting a little sick. Now, I don't know why God allowed the cockroaches on the ark, just if you ask me about it. But they were there somehow. And uh, I can see all those animals there, and I can see those buffaloes getting a little seasick. I don't know if Noah had, is that Dramamine that folks take to, to fill calm? I don't know if Noah had just big, big amounts of Dramamine on the, on the ark there, but I don't know necessarily what Noah and his family did with the waste on the ark. Maybe the Lord shut up both ends of those animals so they didn't have to eat a lot and they ha- didn't have to dispose of a lot. I don't have all the answers. But when I imagine Noah in the ark in my mind, I'm not imagining it as a storybook tale. I'm imagining it as if it was so clearly happening as if you were sitting right in front of me. You see, Noah did get on an ark, and it was not because he just thought that rain could come. He was not the first weatherman. We know that because most of the time weathermen are wrong, and Noah was right. But when I think of Noah on that ark, I do not think of it as if it did not happen and it was just a good story to teach children. I think of Noah on there and Jesus Christ, is, or the ark is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it has typology. I think it has theology. I think that that really, really happened. And I'd better say it this way. I know it happened. When I think of Old Daniel being told that he could not bow the knee to, to anyone other than the king and that he could not continue to pray to his own God. 
When I picture Daniel going to that window and opening those windows, as was his custom, it was his normal daily habit to pray to the Lord, and he was not ashamed of it. Some of us are so ashamed to, uh, to pray at lunchtime. Daniel was not ashamed to pray. I was watching the Angels game both, uh, or the, yeah, I call it the Angels game because the Rangers didn't show up. But I was watching the Rangers and the Angels play both last night and today, and a pitcher came in in the eighth inning for the, the Angels, and he, and he took his hat down over his head, and I, I don't know what he was doing. He very well could have been cursing, but it sure looked like he was praying to me. And then he uh, took that hat and he did this with it. Now, I don't know what that means. I assume it was some type of Catholic performance, what they call that crossing yourself. I, I don't really know what that is. But he was so ashamed of what he was doing, he did it like this. At least Pudge Rodriguez, man, every time he would, he would, he'd get down there and he would do it, at least he was not ashamed of what he believed. And neither was Daniel. And when Daniel opened those windows to pray, he knew that people were out seeking for his head. And he opened those windows and he prayed. And when I imagine Daniel being cast into that lion's den, I'm sure that there was some fear in Daniel's heart. Daniel had no promise that those lions would not tear him apart. But God was faithful to someone who was faithful to him. I was trying to tell the teenagers this morning, God will always be faithful to someone who's faithful to them. With obedience always comes blessing. And Daniel walks into that lion's den, and I guess they shut that door, or they close that rock face off, whatever you want to imagine in your mind. And he walks in there, and he says, Kitty, 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 kitty. Nice kitty. I believe God shut the mouth of those lions that night. And I don't just think that happened. I don't just imagine it as if it was on a flannel graph board. I think it happened just as if I married my wife three years ago. It's just as real. The Bible is absolute truth. Why aren't we a little more serious about it? I mean, if it really is God's email to us, if it's his love letter to us, why aren't we more diligent and studious to study it? Why aren't we just doing everything we can to learn what this book says? Because at the end of the day, and I don't mean this to offend you, and you're all my friends in this room, and as Brother Pickett said, most I get along with. But I'm not trying to offend you tonight, but I don't really care what your opinion is. Especially when it comes to church. It does not matter how you want to worship. It does not matter how you want to feel. It does not matter what you want to believe. All that matters is what God wants. And in His Word, He has taught us how we are to worship. In His Word, He has given us truths and principles that we are to live by. And just to be very honest with you, I don't really care if you think I'm doing it right. All I care about is if I am right with that book. Just this week, I was speaking to a friend of mine. And that friend began to explain to me how the Lord was working in his heart. And he was asking him to do something that he was not comfortable doing. And and I believe God does that oftentimes, like he did to Abraham, like he did to Jonah. I believe God asks men to do things they're not comfortable with sometimes. 
So my friend was talking to me, and I was on board with everything he was saying. And then he followed it up with this. And then I just had a dream from God. And right there, we departed from what God's Word says to what man wants to feel. Look, I'm not going to apologize for this. I'm not going to act as if we just sweep it under the rug. God no longer uses signs and visions to speak to us. He has His Word, which is absolute perfect and absolute truth, and we don't need to know any more than what God has already taught us in His Word. The problem is none of us are seeking out what's in His Word, so we feel like we have to have a dream. We're trying to be Christians by osmosis. It does not work like that. My friend sat there and began to describe to me how everybody was calling him crazy, but he knew that this dream was from God. And he had had another dream, very similar, that that confirmed that it was from God. And then God did what he said he would do in those dreams. Look, me and my friend are still very close. But I absolutely wholeheartedly disagree with him on one thing, that God used a dream to speak to him. Have you ever gone to bed and woke up the next morning and, and you began to describe your dream to someone? And you say, oh, Brother John, I had this dream. Johnny Manziel was actually playing. <laughs> I, I had this dream. And you ever been trying to describe to someone what you saw and you're like, well, it, it was kind of like... I know I knew who the person was, but I, 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 I don't remember who it was. And, and there's so much uncertainty. I think I read a statistic one time. We don't remember 90% what is in our dreams. We dream all the time, but most of the time we can't remember them when we wake up. You ever been there, done that? Why would God use something so uncertain to speak to us when he has his word with his absolute certainty? Why would he use something that we were so foggy on and that, that we couldn't clearly see? And we woke up and we say, well, was that God or was that just the, the bad spam I ate before I went to bed? Look, my friends, I love my friend to death, but I really don't care what he thinks he felt. It does not matter to me what he knows within his heart of hearts because he's been there. You want to know the number reason, number one reason why people speak in tongues is because they've done it before and they've experienced it and that trumps God's word? They say, oh, I felt it. You don't know, you've never done it, but I felt it. God's word trumps our feelings, trumps our emotions. It is the final authority. It is the only authority. It should be our top priority. God's word is all that matters. And why do we not treat it as if it is the lifeblood of our Christianity? Because it is. I want to speak to you tonight about a group of people who were unprepared. They did not take uh, precaution. They were not aware. They did not do everything they could to be ready for battle. So that when battle struck, they were defeated before it ever came. I want you to notice with me, first of all tonight, in verses 16 through 18, the certainty of trouble. The certainty of trouble. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people that were present with them abode in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. 
Now you'll learn if you look back at verses 1 through 3 that that's exactly where the children of Israel are. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines. In other words, these people were just coming out to steal and to take advantage of folks who were unprepared and unready. I don't necessarily know if they even had to be heavily armed. That's not the idea. They were not soldiers that went out. They were spoilers that went out. And these men went out and they were trying to steal other people's goods. And they came out of the camp of the Philistines. Now they came out in three companies. One company turned into the way that leadeth to Ophrah, unto the land of Shaul. Another company turned to the way of Beth Horon. And another company turned to the way of the border uh, that looked to the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. And it's almost as if the Philistines send three bands and completely surround so that no matter which way the children of Israel were going to go, they were going to have to face them. Now, if you send one person straight at me, I have a lot of options as to which way I can go. I can do my Johnny Manziel of a juke and get around you when I was younger. Now that's not as top of a priority on the list. I can go straight away from you and hopefully I can outrun you. I can go to the right, I can go to the left, but if you send three guys, that's why I always wondered in Jackie Chan movies, why all those 25 people didn't just attack him at once. You ever wondered that? I, I love old Chuck Norris. I love old Walker Cordell. Uh, Cordell, what, what, Cordell Walker, I'm sorry, I'm naming my son after the man. I ought to know. I love old Cordell Walker. Uh, it, that was a joke. It's actually after Gene Cordell, but it, it works, you see. But I, I love how he fights and how he wears the tightest blue jeans. Skinny jeans did not start in, in this decade. They started when old Walker, Texas Ranger, was wearing them. And you may laugh now, but he wore them Wranglers tight. So tight that it was not amazing he just kicked a man roundhouse, kicked a man in the face. It was more amazing that he could get his leg high enough to kick him in the face in those jeans. And it, I just always wondered why these 20 people who he was fighting did not just say, One, two, three, and they all go at once. But that's not what they did. This guy would come one time, and if you notice in some of the the martial arts movies, the other guys just stand in the background doing this. And it creates the illusion that he's fighting a lot more people. He never takes on more than one person at a time. I always wondered about that. But if you see in the Bible here how the Philistines depart, they go and they essentially send people in every direction so that no matter where the Israelites were to go, they were going to face trouble. My friend, it's no different for you and I. There is nothing more certain in this life than the fact that Christians will face trouble. i got a picture to show you tonight. I love this. I've always thought of this. Sometimes this is how I feel. Someone posted a lost dog poster. He has three legs. He's blind in one eye, missing a right ear. His tail's broken, and he was recently castrated. The answer's to the name of Lucky. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, like things ought to be going better, but they're not? You can take that off there, JT. That's not spiritual at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I feel that way sometimes. 
This afternoon, I was getting close to the Lord. I was praying. I was seeking God's face, saying, Lord, oh God, please speak through me. Speak through me. Speak to me. God, use me in a, in a mighty, marvelous way. And I was so close to prevailing. I was so close to having fire fall in my living room and having a dream from God. Making sure you're paying attention. That was good, Brother Marshall. Thank you for that help there. I was just, I was trying to persevere. My daughter woke up. The thunder kind of woke her up. And so I go in there and I get her up and I, I put her in my arm. I just bring her back to sit on my chair. And she's in my arm and she's sitting right here and I'm looking at my sermon trying to get ready. Oh, God, please use me. God, please use me. I feel something warm on my finger. And I said, it's the fire. It's the fire from God. It doesn't start in your heart. It starts on your thumb. I realized that that warmth began to spread in a downward motion, almost as if gravity was pulling the fire. And I said, God, send the fire to my heart, not to my feet. Then I realized my daughter urinated on me. There was no fire at all. In fact, she was quenching any fire that was going to be there. You ever feel like everything's going wrong? I, I, I heard this saying the other day, and I loved it. Some days you're the pigeon, some days you're the statue. Man, I tell you, some days it just seems like no matter what you do, it's one of those mornings where you stop at McDonald's and you get that dollar soda. What a good way to start your day. Get that big old drink there so you can drown your sorrows, old Dr. Pepper. And then before you get out of the McDonald's parking lot, that bad boy busts all over because the McDonald's worker didn't put the cap on. And now the whole day's ruined, and it's all downhill from there. You you ever had one of those days? Am I the only person? Absolutely. Christian, troubles are certain in your life, and the Word of God says as much. John chapter 16, verse 33 says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Now notice, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The Bible goes on to say in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, And that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Christian, you're going to face trouble. You're going to face unexpected circumstances that come down the pike and slap you right upside the head. I've heard it said before, you're either going into a trial, you're in a trial, or you're going out of a trial. That's the way Christianity is. You will face trials. I don't preach a prosperity gospel. The only thing that prospers me is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I preach a gospel that's hard. I preach a gospel that sometimes does not... Uh, feel good. I preach a gospel that sometimes life is difficult, but my friend, the gospel that I preach is a Savior who will never leave you through whatever valley you're going through. Oh, you'll face trouble. No matter what the children of Israel did, they were going to face trouble. I want you to notice not only the certainty of trouble, I want you to notice, secondly, the collapse in teaching. The collapse of teaching. Look in verse 19. Verse 19 of chapter 13, the Bible says, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. 
For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. Now, I don't believe Smith is a very Jewish name. So I, I, I highly doubt it was talking about Abraham Smith. I believe if you read it in context, you can understand it's not talking about someone's last name. It's talking about a blacksmith. It's pretty evident to me. Maybe, maybe you understand that as well, that there were no blacksmiths. And I'm not talking about African-American smiths either. Please don't mistake that. There were no people who formed iron, who made metals, swords, and spears. And the Bible says that there was not one of them in the entire nation of Israel. Now, this has not always been the circumstance. But why is it the circumstance now? Well, I thought of many possibilities. But the only one I can come to is nobody ever learned to do it. You know, no, nobody's father ever passed down that trade to his son. No child ever grew interested in forming metal and, and, and making horseshoes and making swords and making spears. Nobody ever got interested in it. And so they just, at one point, they became extinct. And now the Bible says there's not a single blacksmith in the entire nation of Israel. And I want you to notice another thing. The Philistines are happy because of that. You know what the devil's happy about in our church? That more teenagers are not learning the word of God for themselves. You know what the devil's happy about? That there's no adults in this building willing to take the next step in their Christian education. And whether it's you've never been through discipleship or whether it's you've never advanced that uh, uh, education to teaching. I'll tell you, there's no better way to learn the word of God than being forced to learn so that you can teach others. And I don't know where you are in this process, but you know what the devil does every time somebody says, nah, I don't think I'll pursue that. You know what he does? There's no smiths. There's no students of the word of God. They're, they're going to die off one day. They're going to go extinct. Because we're not teaching the Word of God. We're not learning the Word of God. The Bible tells us that we are to be faithful stewards in learning the Word of God. It is to become a priority in our life. And, and that's really a poor way of saying it. The only thing that matters is your knowledge of the Word of God. God can take somebody who knows this book and make him the best salesman at a company. God prospers those who obey and know His Word. He just does. And if you don't know the Word of God like you think you ought to, there's something in you burning that says, take the next step. That's why we started a class here at the church for people who wanted to learn the very basic nature of our church. It's, it's the newcomers class where they go in and they take six weeks and if they have a single question about anything our church believes or does, they can just say, excuse me, Brother Pickett, how do we believe on this matter? It's because we're not ashamed of what we believe. And we're not force-feeding people to believe like us. We want you to rightly divide the word of truth and know the word of God for yourself. Too many people believe what some man has taught them. Don't ever take my word for it. Uh, hey, I've been wrong before. I'm not too, um, uh, too prideful to admit it. 
I, I, I've looked at Dad. You might, you might think this is super prideful, and probably it is. And I was probably in error when I did this. But me and my dad have had theological debates before. And about 120, 30, 100%, I've been wrong. And not all the time was I necessarily doing it as if I believed those other things. I wanted to hear how he defended his faith. And I was not criticizing him. I was not trying to put him down on what he believes. I'm trying to learn what a man of God, a student of the Word of God, believes. And I'm trying to believe it for myself. And if he can prove to me the Bible says something, then I will modify my entire belief system to believe what the Word of God says. Friend, we're just not good enough students. That was the most noble thing about uh, 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 the Bereans is that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they searched the scripture daily whether those things were so. What they would do is they would hear a sermon and they'd go home and say, family, gather around the fireplace as we read the word of God and make sure the preacher today wasn't just preaching his opinion, wasn't just preaching his ideas, wasn't just preaching his philosophies, but he was preaching the very word of God. And children, if the Bible says it, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're just not good enough students. We're definitely not good enough teachers. My friend, it's a shame when a teenager can graduate from this church, from the youth department in this church, and not know enough about their faith that they could prove that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of the earth, and not know that they, He died for their sins, and not for their sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. It, it would be a shame if they could not go out and look at some Muslim in the face and say, I don't know much about this Allah character because he's not in my Bible. I don't know anything about this Muhammad so-called prophet that you speak of because he's not in my Bible. And I don't really care what other books you have in your hand because they don't matter to me. All I know is I read in the Bible that Jesus Christ made himself equal with God. All I know in the Bible is that God called the Son of God God. All I know is that Jesus Christ came to the earth, and there are three that beareth record in heaven, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And those three are the only ones that have any say or any pull in heaven. And it would be a shame if our kids couldn't defend their faith. Here's a question. Can you? You're the teacher. You're the one teaching them. You're teaching them by example. You're teaching them by your diligence and your study. You're teaching them every single day they come to you. And, and, and I've learned more about biblical character of a godly man from men in this church than I've ever learned from old Abraham. It's men who love the Word of God and were willing to change according to the Word of God. And I looked at them and I said, you have it down. And as just a young man, I looked at them and I said, I can model my life after you because you are like Christ. Well, that's not a wrong thing either because Paul said, be as I am for I am like Christ. Christian, are you a student of the Word of God? Are you a teacher of the Word of God? I don't want only to show you the collapse of teaching, but I also want to show you the confidence in traitors that the children of Israel had. Chapter 13 and verse 20, the Bible says, But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share 
and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Now, if you are a Bible student at all, you will know that the children of Israel are God's people. And the, and the Philistines have always represented anything opposed to God. They represent wickedness. They, they represent idolatry. And they are always enemies. Can anybody tell me, uh, does anybody know what nationality King David was? He was Jewish. Does anybody know what nationality old, uh, uh, Goliath was? Philistine. And in the valley there, as David slung his stone, it wasn't just a shepherd versus a giant. It was God versus the world. And the world sat there and said, I defy you. You, you come with me as a, a dog with saves. You, I, I can't believe none of you men are men enough to fight for your God. And that was the world crying out saying, your God's not real. He's not alive. He's never done anything for me. And old David stood up and he said, I defy you by the armies of the living God. You will shut your little mouth. And by the end of this day, I will feed the flesh off your bones to the birds of the air. Oh, it wasn't just a shepherd versus a giant. It was God's man versus the world's man. It's always represented that. And so as the Philistines here are represented in the Bible as the ones having the blacksmiths and the ones having the files and the ability to sharpen the weapons, the Bible says the children of Israel made a pact with them. In other words, I'll put it in modern-day vernacular. The children of Israel subcontracted the, the Philistines to sharpen their weapons. Now, that doesn't seem like such a bad thing as long as the terms of the contract are honored. If the children of Israel get to keep their weapons and the Philistines do what they say and sharpen their weapons and then return them, it doesn't seem so bad. But here's the problem. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Can anybody tell me when Goliath of Gath stands in that valley? 1 Samuel 17. We're not just three chapters removed from David and Goliath, and they have all the weapons. Sometimes we make deals with the world that don't seem so bad at the time, but always turn out bad for us. You want me to give you an example? I'll tell you something. The world sells this bill of goods that alcohol is great. You watch their commercials. They're not selling anything else. Because if you have a beer in your hand, you have a beautiful woman on both sides of you. And, 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 and they, they sell this idea that the parties are fun and that everything's great. And, and they sell this idea that all you have to have is a cold beer and that'll make everything good in your life. But if you've ever known an alcoholic, everything's not good for that person. There's a lot of problems in their life. A lot of times their kids won't even look at them in the eye because they're scared when dad gets home. I have very good friends who had no relationship with their father when they were younger because they were so scared of him when he'd come home in a drunken rage. The world sells this bill of goods. They, they sell us the alcohol, and then once they get us addicted to it, what do they call it? A disease. It's just a disease. And it's your disease. And we can help you through it. Oh, just a few payments to this medical facility and, and a 30-day retreat to our facility, and you won't need that alcohol anymore. It's not a disease. 
the Bible calls it a mocker. The Bible calls it strong drink raging. The Bible doesn't say it's a disease. You know what the Bible labels it as? Sin. And it's no different than any other sin that you might have lied and told your mother that your room was clean. Oh, that's not a disease. That's your sin nature. That's you trying to get out from mama whooping your hind end. It's no different. It's all sin. And Christian, be very careful that you don't buy this idea the world's selling us. The world's trying to tell us that it's wrong to punish our children. They're trying to tell us that it's, it's no longer in or hip to spank your child. I, I would then ask them, well, then why did God put so much padding on their backside? And I think Huggies and Pampers are leading the conspiracy. Have you seen how thick them things are? You've got to look like you're beating a mule or your child don't even feel it. You spank them, they run away laughing. Get me again, Daddy, get me again. I don't understand. And the world's telling us that we are to reason with our children. Now, now, Johnny, come sit down. Johnny, when you hit your sister in the face, was that a nice thing to do? Well, she took my toy. Well, Johnny, was that, your, was that Barbie your toy? Well, I wanted it. Well, Johnny, is that your sister's toy? She, yes, it's my sister's toy. Okay, Johnny, was that a nice thing to do? No, it was not nice. You apologized to your sister. I'm sorry! Now, Johnny, you need to mean it. I'm sorry. Now, Johnny, I need you to go to time out. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Have you ever seen the mother at the grocery store? Her children are grabbing every single thing from the impulse buy cabinet. That's what I call it. Why would you put a Snickers bar right there? I've got my credit card out. That's a bad place to put that Snickers bar. That's a, a Dr. Pepper. A Dr. Pepper and a Snickers bar right by the cash register. Oh, convenient, Walmart. And you're right there by the impulse counter and and those kids are there, and they're grabbing everything. Mommy, can I have this? Mommy, can I have this? Johnny, stop hitting your sister. I want her Barbie. And it's just this incessant, terrible thing. And you want to go over there, and you say, ma'am, if you'll just give me permission, if, if you'll just sign this waiver, I'll take care of it. Amen. Brother Adam made me up a waiver. He drafted one, so I, I, I don't even have to worry about it. Have you ever been there? And she sits there and she says, now, Johnny, please stop. Just let us get to the car. Johnny, I'll buy you ice cream. I'll buy you frozen yogurt. I'll buy you a Dr. Pepper. Johnny, I'll, ba- I'll give you a bath and sweet tea tonight if that's what you... Johnny, please stop. Am I wrong? And the world tells us that it doesn't work to spank your child. I would think that about 95% of this audience tonight would disagree. We turned out all right. it's not this generation that's having so much trouble with the law. It's not this generation that's having so much trouble with authority. It's a teenager that says, I don't care what you say, Mr. Police Officer. Friends, don't buy what the world's selling. 
They're selling you garbage. You're getting advice from people who raise children that are rebels and homosexuals and filthy, uh, idolatrous people, and they say, oh, look at my children. I don't want your advice. I wouldn't trade your kids for mine, not if the world flipped upside down. Don't buy what the world's selling. The children of Israel went and made a deal with the Philistines and said, oh, if you'll just take care of us here, it'll all work out. There'll be nothing wrong. Yeah, until the Philistines come in and take advantage of you. The world doesn't love you. The Bible says, if the world hated me, and it's Jesus talking, Jesus says, if the world hated me, know that it will hate you also. We're not, we do not belong to this world. We are not of this world. We, we do not, to be, uh, to be friends with this world is to be at enmity with God. You see, there is no gray area here. It's either you're on God's side or you're on the world's side. And if you're on God's side, the world's going to hate you. Don't make a deal with them. You study your book. You study your Bible to see how to raise your children. And I am not a proponent of beating a child. Please do not mistake that. There are children that are abused and neglected, and that is not right. But when a children looks at his parent and says, No! Like my daughter is starting to do. I say, No, Caitlin, you come here. How about you do it like God wants you to do it, and not like the world wants you to do it? Don't sell this idea that every disease is not a problem or every sin is not a, it's not a big deal. We'll just get it taken care of. Instead of people wanting, uh, instead of the world wanting us to fix our problems, they just tell us to get it all out. They tell us to sow our wild seeds and then lay down on a couch with some counselor somewhere and explain to him how we felt and why our mother not telling us that she loved us enough caused us to go to Vegas and waste all of our family's money. And we sit there and they, the world says, get it out, when the Bible says, get it right. The counselor says, well, how do you feel? God says, I don't care how you feel. Do what I say and everything will work out. Don't buy the bill of goods the world's selling us, church. Christian, you've got to be very aware. Do not have confidence in the traitors of this world. They do not want good for you. In fact, what I've noticed is most of them just want your money. And I just believe with all my heart too many Christians are raising their children and are, believe, are, are blending biblical theology and philosophy with worldly philosophy. We're blending them. We're saying, well, God says this and the world says this. And so the church has been constantly following the world. And the church has always been apart from the world. But we've just gotten closer to the world as they moved. And the Bible says, don't blend, don't change. Be not tossed about with every wind and wave of doctrine. How about you just stand firm on what God said? Oh, and back in the King James English, how about you just find out what this book says and live it out? If we do that, church, I just believe God would be honored and we would be blessed. Not only not to have confidence in traitors, I want you to notice fourthly and finally with me, the calamity of a tussle. The calamity of a tussle. Look in verse 22 of our chapter here, please. If you have your Bible in your lap, go to verse 13 of 1 Samuel. Verse number 22, the Bible says, So it came to pass in the day of battle 
that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan, his son, was there found. The Bible tells us here that everybody in the entire nation of Israel that was with Saul and was with Jonathan, not one of them had a sword, not one of them had a spear. All of them were in Philist- uh, with the Philistines. The only two people that had a sword with them at this time were Saul and Jonathan. Everybody else had given their weapons up. And now battle's upon them. The Bible says, in the day of battle. And I can just imagine as the Philistines began to press up on them, the spoilers come in to take from them what is not rightly theirs. They come up to them and they say, we want what you have. Now you're going to fight for it? And they look around and say, yeah, we'll fight you. Yeah, we'll fight you. Just wait a second. Let me go back to my tent and get my... broom because they didn't have a sword I can just imagine as they saw the spoilers approaching the children of Israel got so encouraged they said oh our God can deliver us oh our God will fix this problem oh all I have to do is have the faith in God oh all I have to do is stand up with a weapon oh all I have to do we've won a lot of battles without ever firing an arrow we've won a lot of wars without ever swinging a sword oh all I have to do is be prepared and stand for what's right and God will put them in our hands And they go searching through their house. And they're looking for anything to fight with. And then they realize every weapon that should have been in their home and should have been ready to go and fight is over with the Philistines. And I can imagine as the Philistines approach, they've got weapons everywhere. Some of them probably had Jewish architecture on them. Some of them probably said a Jewish name. As they're going to be slaughtered at the end of their own sword. Because they weren't prepared. Christian, I said earlier that you're going to face trouble. It is absolute certain you'll face it. In other words, you're going to face battles. There is an absolute certainty that one day the Bible could say this about you, Miss Mary Curry, in the day of battle. One, one day, your name would be written right there. It's going to say, Brother James Scott, in the day of battle. Because it is absolutely certain that one day you'll have to stand up. And I'll be honest with you, it's not just one day. Every day is a battle for a Christian. The world calls to us. The world draws us. The world allures us. Every day is a battle to say no to the devil and say no to our flesh and say no to the world and say yes to God in the higher call. Every day is a battle. Are you going to be prepared when it comes? What is a biblical type of a sword? Well, Ephesians 6 tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The Bible tells us over in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged, what's the next word? Sword. When the day of battle sits at your doorstep, The only thing you're going to have is the Word of God. I promise you, when somebody has just lost their child, it's not going to be you coming and putting your arm around them that says, you know, I I hope this all works out. I hope that that it all just kind of, one day you get over this. You don't ever get over something like that. You know what comforts people in their time of hurting? Hey, take your Bible to Psalms. 
take your Bible to Hebrews where the Bible says God hath promised He will never leave you nor forsake you. And take your Bible to 1 Corinthians where the Bible says there hath no temptation taken you but such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. At the day of battle, your words fall flat every time. I've sat across the table of people grieving. How would you have liked to have been the preacher that did the funeral for that family that lost a three-year-old son because their father ran over him with his vehicle? I've never gone through anything like that. Have you ever gone through anything like that? I couldn't even begin to imagine how to talk to that family, how to give them counsel, how to give them comfort. Oh, wait, yeah, I can. Hey, take your Bible. Take your Bible and read all the wondrous promises of God that the Bible says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For God will be with you, and His rod will comfort you, and His staff will guide you. You see, the Bible is the only thing that will help you in the day of battle. Man's philosophy, the world's traditions, the rudiments of men, all of them fall flat when you're facing the war. When the Philistines come at you with sword in both hands and with arrows behind you and with spears in their hands and they say, we're going to get you and the day of battle rests right in front of you, you're not going to be able to say, stand down. You're not going to be able to say, back up. All you'll be able to say is, God, please help me. God, through the word that you've given me and the promises you've given me, God, please help me today. The day of battle will sit at your door one day. It's just such a shame we don't know the word of God to be able to find exactly what God would tell us in those times. Now, let me ask you, if, if the day of battle came to your doorstep tomorrow, and you felt like your world was falling apart. You get a phone call and says, there's been a car accident. You get a phone call that says, it's malignant. You get a phone call that, that wrecks your world. And you look at that old leather back book. One that says, Holy Bible. The one that on the spine says, King James Version. You look at that book, would you know where to go? Would you know where to find comfort and solace, or would you just do the Baptist flip and pray, and then you get to Leviticus, and you realize there ain't a whole lot of comfort in the badger skins going on the, temple, the tabernacle. You see, the reason you have to be a student is the same reason that David had to practice with that sling. Goliath never falls, and you can say, oh, God, God would have guided that stone. Yeah, he could have. But it just so happened that David had already slain a bear and a, and, and a lion. It already happened that David was so comfortable with that sling. It, it, it would have already occurred to God that that was David's choice of weapon. That's why when Saul says, David, take my armor, take my weapon, David says, King, I'm pretty good with this. Are you pretty good with the Word of God? Because in the day of battle, that's your sword. Did you know that you can use your sword for offense and defense? In fact, it's the only offensive weapon that we have in the whole armor of God. All the rest of it's defensive. But the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is, a, uh, is an attacking uh, weapon. It will help the devil flee from us. It will put the devil back on his heels. I find it comical at stories where people faced people who probably were, uh, had demonic oppression on them. 
And, and my dad tells a story of this, of how he went into a house and all he had was the Bible. And every time he got near that lady, she just ran. And my dad said he put that Bible out and he just chased that woman around the house. She was so strong she could move grown men. And all my father had to do was chase her around the house with a book. Sorry, cameraman. All he had to do was lift this book and she'd say, get away from me. I want no part of that. You know why? Because this is an offensive weapon. That day when the devil starts to tempt you and say, ah, your family's not worth staying sober. Ah, your family's not worth maintaining your purity, maintaining your faithfulness to God. Ah, your family's not worth it. You know what you need to do? You need to take the word of God and say, get back. Uh, Flee from me. I, I just believe that we ought to know our Bible enough so that when that day comes, we'd be able to attack. In, the, in college, I went through a course that was called Advanced Evangelism. I've told this story several times to the teenagers, but this class was above my academic level at the time. I had taken the prerequisite to take the course, but I believe it was a junior level course, and I was taking it as a I, I think a second semester freshman. And so I was not very well prepared to take this course, and I should have been scared off by the word advanced. I got it. I got in there, and I remember feeling as the teacher spoke, all the lessons were over my head, all the lectures were kind of over my head, and I was kind of looking down the road like, hey, you getting this? <laughs> I ain't. Look at this guy over here. He's a, he's a grown man. He, he served in the army. He comes back. He's now in Bible college. He's 37 years old. And I'm looking at him and he's like, yeah, I knew that. I, he's writing, taking notes. And I'm like, how do you spell ecclesiology? I remember feeling so intimidated, but it wasn't so bad because I always... When I take classes, I defi- devise ways to pass that class. So I would say, well, this quiz is wor- or the quizzes are worth 70% of the grades. So if I just ace all the quizzes, I, I pass the class. I literally don't have to do anything else. But if I ace those quizzes, I, I can pass the class. So that was my goal. I was going to do good on the quizzes. I remember that first quiz came, and the very first question was this. Give me 10 verses to defend the deity of Christ. And you were required to bring a Bible, and they wouldn't let you use your iPhone, and Siri wasn't available at the time. And if I had asked Siri, she'd have said, I'm sorry, I'm not taking requests right now. <laughs> Siri is the only piece of electronic technology I have that takes banker's hours, and by that I mean a retired banker who never works. But... We had, we had to bring a Bible, and I was looking down at all these guys, and they had their Bibles, and I, I was just bringing the Bible that I carried to chapel every day. It's one I could stick in my bag. It was actually a Bible that a missionary had given while he was in our church. And it, it was like an English translation of the same Bible he'd be handing out on the mission field. And so it was like a gift Bible, essentially. There was no cross-references, no helps. It was just the Bible. So that first quiz came across my, my, my table there, and, and it said, give ten verses to defend the deity of Christ. And I said, John 3, 
seven? No, 16. Six, John 3, 16. I think I listed four. The rest of the quiz followed that same pattern. Give me 10 verses for this. Give me 10 verses for this. Give me 10 verses for this. And I was looking at this little Bible saying, thanks a lot. If I had a Schofield in front of me, it would give me cross-references. If I had some other Bible with helps and, and maybe a description at the bottom, I could understand and I could find that verse and I could go somewhere else and that would help me. But everybody else has these huge family Bibles and I'm sitting there with my little red, my gift Bible and I'm thinking, there ain't no way. And I tanked it. I think I made like a 27 on that thing. I no sooner got out of class, I went to the bookstore. And, and I don't know if dad remembers this phone call. I say, Dad, I'm going to buy a Bible. He said, okay, what, what do you think about getting? Well, somebody in the class was telling me about a, have you ever heard of a Thompson Chain study Bible? He said, yeah, I've heard of them. I said, well, I'm looking at one for $89. Can I go ahead and get that? Why do you need it? Well, Dad, are you really going to say no to me wanting a Bible? I mean, you can. You can. I mean, Sure. I think I have an NKJV in my dorm. I'll just go use that one. And he said, sure, go ahead and buy it. Well, the beauty of a Thompson Chain Bible is, in fact, it's the Bible I'm preaching from tonight. If you can find one verse, it sets it up in a chain-style system. In other words, if you can go to John chapter 1, verse 1, and you can remember that Jesus is eternal from that one reference. The chain will help you get from, to the next reference, and the next reference, and the next reference, and the next reference. And you can have 20 references, and you did no work. Once I got that Bible, and it was not wrong to do this. Uh, it may sound that way, but it was not. Once I got that Bible, the class became relatively easy. Because the quizzes were like, list one, ten verses. Okay, well, I can remember one or two. Yeah, well, I'll just, yeah, I got this. And then my Bible helped me out the rest of the way. Christian, would you compare your Bible knowledge to a gift Bible or a Thompson chain? Because when the day of battle sits on your doorstep, are you going to be sitting there, oh, what do I do? Oh, man, I hope I pass. Or are you going to be able to go, oh, yeah, right here. Yeah, I can figure it. Oh, yeah, I remember this other verse over here in Philippians. Oh, man, I remember preacher preaching the other day. He used a verse in, in Genesis that applied to Abraham and his life and how that... I remember that. Oh, yeah, I, I... Gift Bible or study Bible? Which one are you? Now, I don't know much about the topic I'm going to speak on now. I have always been interested, however, in the West, in the Old West... And this was developed in my heart at a very young age, considering it was the only thing that was on our television. <sighs> uh, I say, hey, Dad, is this another John Wayne movie? Yeah, son. Well, it looks like it's the exact same John Wayne movie we watched Tuesday night. It is, son. Well, Dad, is this like an alternate ending? Is this like the second one? Is, is, is there is there something? No, son, it's the same one. Oh, why are we watching the same Western over again? I've seen so many Westerns in my life, and I've always been interested in that. 
Well, what do we think of when we think of the cowboys? We think of the Indians. And that was always the thing about the Indians is they would come in and they always had their shirts off and they always had their war paint on and most of the time they were just getting slaughtered by the cowboys. Except last of the Mohicans. They, they do a little slaughtering now. And, 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 and I remember watching those movies and I think, man, these Indians ain't got a prayer. They come in there with stick and string and the cowboys are with Winchester repeating arms saying, katow, 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 like the riflemen. Like John Wayne in True Grit with both reins in his mouth and two Winchester repeating arms in his hand, lever action goes, I'm like, man alive, these Indians. You dumb. You ain't going to last long you keep running up on that dude. I know a little bit more about archery now, and I can shoot my bow and arrow. And I've never done this, but I have seen someone shoot a bow and arrow 100 yards and kill an animal with it. 100 yards, that's a long way. I have also seen someone shoot 1,000 yards with a rifle and kill an animal. Them Indians never stood a prayer. I don't care if they was Robin Hood with that bow. As long as Quigley Down Under stood across the way, they ain't got no shot. And they say, (laughs) What I've noticed is the battle cry is not so intimidating from a dead Indian laying on the ground. As I've gotten a little older, I've done a little study on this. The Indians were actually quite a, a great foe. They actually were a good adversary, and, and we were struggling, and I use we like I'm a cowboy. <laughs> but the cowboys were really struggling, and even before the cowboy days, the Europeans were struggling containing them because they knew the land so much better. They, they could get them in bushwhack scenarios. They, they, they were actually a formidable foe. Formidable foe. And so... What the Englishmen decided to do was not fight them so much hand-in-hand combat, but was to attack their lifeblood. You may be wondering what I'm talking about. Well, there was a reason that the Native Americans were nomadic, why they lived in teepees. It's because they followed the herds of buffalo. You see, they, they were in teepees because when they were there, the buffalo were there. And when the buffalo moved on, the Indians would pack up and follow the buffalo because the buffalo work meant everything to the Indians. The Indians would hunt them on foot, and once they killed them, there was not a single thing that went to waste. They would use their horn. They would use their tail. I read today that they would use their tail as a fly swatter. So they'd bring it back, and they didn't have any way to control the bugs, so they just cut off the tail of a, 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 of a buffalo, and they'd start swatting flies in their teepee. There was not a single thing went to waste. They used the bones as, uh, as skinning and shaving instruments. They used every bit of the meat. Their hides were used on their teepees. So you want to know what the Europeans decided to do? Kill the buffalo. When we arrived, we, again, stupid. When the Europeans arrived in 1800, there was an estimated 30 million buffalo in the, in the North American continents. You can see on the screen, this is a chart of how diverse they were. Most of us, when we think of buffalo, we think of 
big plains, like the big flat rolling grasslands. That's not at all true. There was a good possibility that one time a Joshua walked down 174. You can see that. They stretched down into Mexico. They went all the way up to Alaska. There were an estimated 30 million buffalo in North America. By the end of the 18th, uh, uh, by the end of the 1800s, there were an estimated 500 left. They had killed every buffalo they could find. In fact, our military was aiding men in the slaughter of these buffalo because it was much more than just using the meat. And most of the time, one one person could kill 250 a day with one of those uh, I forget the uh, sharps. With one of those Sharps uh, guns, they could shoot much farther than a Winchester could. And so they could kill 250 buffalo a day, one man. You can see by the next picture how devastating this was. Everything you see there is a buffalo skull. That is a mountain of buffalo skulls. And what the Europeans decided to do, and this is, this is well documented. You can do research on it if you want. There were literally state representatives that stood up before Congress and they would say, it would not matter to me if every single buffalo in the world were extinct as long as it brought peace to our nation. And so that's what they tried doing. They tried eliminating the buffalo because, as other men said, if we eliminate the buffalo, we eliminate the Indians. And so you see the devastation that they occurred. Seven, uh, uh, 500 by the end of the 1800s were estimated to be around. Here's the problem with our diligence and our study. Is one day, we are doing more damage right now than we can even imagine. You may think you're only affecting you, but dad, you're affecting your children. If your children never see you read your Bible, you know what you're doing? you're adding to the pile of skulls. Because these children are not going to look at their father with respect and say, well, he, he, he says he studies his Bible, and I see him study his Bible. And so that creates a desire in their heart to see what dad was learning about. And when we are not the students of the Word of God that we should be, we're just casting another skull on the mountain saying, one day we're going to be extinct. One day there will not be people who are diligent in study. And this is only evident in the fact how many people are attacking the book that we study from. Dad and Mom, your child ought to know why you use the weird book that you use. Why all of their friends that they have use a book that sounds much more modern than than theirs does. Your children ought to know that. And yeah... I can teach it in the youth department. Brother Jim and Brother Brian can teach it in the children's church. But at the end of the day, our responsibility is to teach and preach the word, but it is your responsibility to teach your child. I'm afraid that while there might be a pretty good number of Bible students now, in the future, we might be looking at a small group of about 500. And there's going to be so few of them that they won't even be able to make a very big impact for Christ at all. I'm worried. I'm worried that our armory is empty. 
I'm worried that we're making too many deals with the world. I'm worried that we're not knowing our book like we ought to know our book. I'm worried that we just are casually calling it our guide and we really couldn't. We refer to the TV guide more than we refer to it. I'm concerned. So I challenge you, will you be a student? Will you be someone who takes back the weapon that God gave you? Will you hold on to this weapon and every day in study and in prayer, will you sharpen this book and will you sharpen your life? And will you let the strength of this book change your life? Because if you don't, a lot like the buffalo, one day they're going to be gone.